right. Hello and welcome to episode four of Core Ideas, a paleolimnology podcast. As usual, you're, we are your hosts, Adam Jesiorski and... And Josh Thienpont. Thanks for coming back again. And today, Josh, we're going to be talking about mudslinging. Oh no, Adam, we're not going to be making fun of people, are we? No, no besmirching of characters today. We are talking about mudslinging from the perspective of collecting sediment cores. Unless we're besmirching people's ability to take sediment cores, I guess. Perhaps. Hopefully we don't get to that. Perhaps, perhaps. But we'll try and avoid that. We'll keep it clean, as clean as we can today. All right. So, um, basically, um, the, over the last couple of episodes, we are talking about some fundamentals of paleomnology. And it's just, the question was always where to begin, because there's so many threads going on. And we realized that really we've talked about things in the mud, how you date the mud. We really need to, to have a discussion, <clears throat> discussion about getting the mud. And the idea is that as lakes uh, gradually fill in over time, you have a great sediment record of, his, of the lake's history at the bottom of the lake. Um, but there's a real... Um, technique and art and set of equipment necessary to retrieve that mud from the bottom and bring it up to the surface uh, without disturbing it all. Yeah, absolutely. And the project is only ever going to be as good as the, the material that you start with. If you start with a really bad sediment core because of picking in the wrong spot, and we're not going to really get into the details of where you take sediment cores, uh, more about some of the ways we can get them, but that is part of the story. Uh, or you were hurried, or the material got mixed up, or used the wrong core for the time period, relating back to what we talked about last week, uh, then you know that's going to be a problem for the remainder of the project, no matter how good your laboratory work, your uh, analytical analyses, any of those things are. So taking a sediment core at the beginning is the critical first step to doing a really good job for your entire paleolimnological analysis. Yeah, and one key thing to keep in mind is depending on the problems that you run into or mistakes that you make, you may ne never actually know about them. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the and that's a real—I mean, that's a real worry, like a concern. But and there's nothing you can really do about it except for being methodical and careful and having some practice at it and learning from people who have done that. You know, listening to a podcast is not going to teach you how to take sediment cores. Getting into the field with people who have done this before, your mentors, whoever those might, people may be, is going to be a critical step in developing those skills and then practicing because it really is uh, a learned skill. Um, and it may look like you know a bit of voodoo when someone who you've been trying really hard to take this sediment core and uh, you just can't get it to work. And then someone who's taken hundreds of sediment cores pulls one out in the first try. You'll get there too. It's just about you know practicing and getting that down. Yeah, uh, I think I know the answer to this question, but who was your initial mentor? Who was the first person that you ever uh, pulled a sediment core with or showed you how to do it? Uh, Brian Ginn, uh, who's at the Lake Simcoe Regional Conservation Authority. Uh, as an undergraduate um, summer student before going into our, my fourth year thesis, went to Nova Scotia and took a whole lot of sediment cores from almost every lake in Halifax um, municipality. So lots of sediment cores that year. And it took a long time to get to get really comfortable at it. Yeah, so, I mean, why do we take the sediment core? We talked about it a little bit, but really the goal is to get a faithful, undisturbed record of the stratigraphy of the sediment. And the whole science of paleolimnology relies on this idea that material that's deeper down the sediment core is older, and you need to bring that back up. 
And a lot of the things we're going to talk about throughout the remainder of the episode are linked to the idea of it depends on that time frame that we're looking at, what kind of sediment coring apparatus we're going to find most applicable. And then also the nature of that sediment itself, whether it's really, really watery surface sediment, whether it's uh, longer, deeper down parts of the stratigraphy that we want to access longer time periods. And as you get deeper in the sediment, it gets to be a lot uh, coarser, or not coarser, a lot um, thicker, a lot less water content, and it becomes a little bit more challenging to use some of those techniques. So the technique you use is really geared towards the time period, um, and the time period is linked to the nature of the sediment itself. Yeah, and... I know we said we weren't going to get into this at all in terms of where you you're choose to core from, but we need to talk a little bit um, because that informs the techniques that you use. Um, but ideally, yeah, for sure. you are looking for a flat central basin in the deepest part of the lake. Um, so that means, um, you know, you need a platform of some kind, whether that's a boat, uh, whether you're drilling through ice, because outside of like the extreme shallowest little puddles, um, you're not going to be walking into the lake to collect these cores. There's yeah, and if you did walk into them, you may end up disturbing it a little bit, and that may not be ideal. It's certainly possible to do that, uh, but it, in general, one of the things that is uh, challenging about designing sediment coring equipment or, or uh, applying it is that you are not in direct contact with the mud itself. So there is some sort of connection between the bottom of the lake, where the sediment is, and your location in the air being, you know, air breathing organisms, not, uh, you know, you could take sediment cores through scuba diving and be right up against that material. It's been done, uh, but it's not common for a lot of logistical reasons. Uh, so there's got to be some sort of linkage there, whether that's uh, cable, whether those are rods, whether it's rope, there's some sort of way that you need to be in contact or connection with that mud at the bottom in order to remove that sediment. And that distance is what? makes it so challenging and why there are so many different devices built for different situations. Um, <clears throat> as sometimes uh, you can be weight limited depending on what you're going from. If you're working through the ice, all of a sudden, you know, you have a lot less limitations in terms of how heavy the equipment can be, but other um, concerns regarding working in the cold, drilling through holes, yeah, for sure. Uh, there's going to be field logistical constraints associated with all of these different uh, components of it. Uh, accessing the lakes being another one, which is kind of linked to what you said a second ago. You know, really remote locations where you're portaging a canoe is going to mean a very different platform for taking sediment cores than if you can drive your car right up to the edge, you know, uh, trailer in a boat with a nice motor on it, and you know, can take that out into the lake. So all of these things are going to be thought uh, have to be thought about in preparation before you ever get there and start to take that sediment core. But today, because we're talking about actually getting the sediment cores, um, we'll leave all all that logistics and field um, notes type stories for another day, and just get into the nitty gritty of collecting the mud um, by talking about a couple of different uh, coring devices. The first one we're going to be talking about today um, is one that I personally have never used um, called a freeze core or frozen crust core, I think you sometimes see it referred to as well. 
Yeah, they've got a bunch of names. Frozen Finger, Core, there's a lot of different names for them, but they all operate on a, the same concept, yep. Where the material is being, fro- the mud is being frozen to the outside of the uh, device, whatever that might look like. So the way that this works is you basically have your device as a cylinder uh, of some kind that you fill with a um, super cool uh, coolant of some kind, whether it is... Um, it's almost always dry ice, um, carbon dioxide mixed, maybe mixed with some sort of alcohol to bring the cooling point down a little bit more, but uh, a dry ice base. So that's quite cold and uh, and it super cools the actual corer itself, which is made out of metal. So it transmits uh, the cold really well to the outside. And then the mud starts freezing to that and it uh, accrues a lot more material and it freezes and freezes onto the outside of that material. So the core is lowered into the bottom, allowed to freeze, that stuff builds up on the outside of it. You leave it for a certain amount of time, there is a point at which the amount of material will decrease because the cold transmission has gone down as you get further away from the actual source. And then you drag that thing back up and you have a in situ picture of this frozen material on the outside of the core that you then have to process quite quickly. So that's not a core where you could take that back as soon as it's up in the air. Even, I mean, if it's in the winter, you get a little more uh, open time with it. But eventually it has to be taken off the core. So yeah, this is one piece of equipment that I personally have never used. So uh, No, me neither. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. For some reason I thought you had. Okay. Nope. Uh, I've, seen, I've seen one, um, but never, never tried myself, no. I mean, one of the nice things about them, before we move on to something we maybe know a little more about, uh, is that they can, they, one nice thing is um, you get a lot of material. You know, if you have this big box that it's, you're limited by the face of the actual core and how much coolant you can put into it. So there are some limitations, but it can build up a fair amount of sediment. The second thing being that uh, because the material comes off whole and in a solid state, it can be useful if used carefully and lowered very carefully into the sediment so as not to disturb that, to get that surface uh, sediment water interface where the water and the sediment meet because it freezes it in, in situ. It's not being brought up liquid, uh, which would happen you know, at any time. Uh, and then the third being related to that, because it's frozen when it comes out of the actual lake on the core, is you can use these for very, very fine resolution sectioning. So sectioning being when we slice the sediment up into its layers. And because that material is frozen, uh, unlike the kind of limitations associated with wet sediment or hard, uh, thicker sediment you might find from like a piston type core, you can use uh, different techniques to get very, very fine, resol- very, very high resolution, very fine sediment intervals, whether those are being sliced off or even you know, looking at seasonal work by peeling it with tape, uh, which can be done. You get very, very fine resolution. But when you do that, you, of course, get very little material. So it's a, it's a trade-off in that case. Okay. So I think we'll just leave that, uh, the, fr- the freeze core, there. Neither of us have ever really used it uh, ourselves, but it's definitely one that has a uh, rich history and large amount of work within the literature. Uh, and it's definitely one that you wouldn't be able to take in your canoe. Like it's something, one of the constraints of that is you need a lot of stuff. They work really well from the ice for that reason, because you have 
the core, which is a big, heavy piece of steel. You have, you know, it's going to be heavy when it comes back out because it's metal. It's got all this mud on it. It gets really, really heavy. So you probably need a winch to get that out of the lake. And then you also need all the coolant. Um, so you need to be able to bring that material out. So it's not a logistically simple type of device. So that's one of the drawbacks associated with that technique. Move on. And now I'm talking, start talking about barrel core. So instead of collecting sediment on the outside of your device, we're talking about uh, coring tubes where you collect a um, cylinder of sediment from the bottom of the lake. And this is an area that uh, we are both much more familiar with. Um, and the simplest in concept to begin talking about is uh, the gravity core. And so the concept behind these is, you know, they've been described many times uh, to me as basically the equivalent to putting your finger on top of a straw. So anything you did as a kid, same idea. You lower your straw into your milk or milkshake, pop or whatever it is, put your finger on the top, and then you can lift the straw out, uh, keeping the bottom half of the straw full of whatever your drink was. And then you're basically doing the same thing just with sediment, where you have a, uh, a weighted tube on a line being lowered down into the water. It penetrates into the sediments just by the weight of the device itself. And then you have a some sort of if it's a if it's a gravity core yep. it, by its weight itself, yep. Um, some sort of messenger device sometimes um, running down the line. There are also other means of triggering. Yeah, some way to, some way to close the straw, basically some way to cap that straw, and we could, we'll talk about those in a second. Um, and then basically, uh, once the device has been triggered, you can pull it up. And uh, as it gets close to the surface, you basically reach down, put a bung on the bottom, cover it somehow. Um, again, depending on the exact mechanics of the specific device, but on the conceptually simplest version, you basically reach down, put a bung in the bottom, and then you have your core. It's contained within a tube, and then you can put it to one side, get some more, or go back to shore and uh, start working on uh, slicing up or extruding it. Yep, for sure. And that, that is a perfect description of the gravity core, you know, the simplest uh, device that's lowered under its own weight. Uh, it's an open tube. It's good for getting the really watery sediment at the surface uh, up down to a depth, you know, depends on the device. Um, your li- there are some limits as to how deep those can penetrate under their own weight. So heavier devices that have more uh, not, I was going to say iron, but it's not really iron. Uh, some people attach like sledgehammers or brass rings or all different ways in which you can make them heavier. will allow them to penetrate a little further, bring up a little more mud lengthwise in terms of the tube. And, uh, and then you have a longer record. But generally we're talking about a meter probably as being a, a long gravity core. Uh, and some of the other things that are related to gravity cores that we could quickly discuss are that closing mechanism. So whether they're messenger operated or float operated or some sort of closing valve operated, um, ways in which they can uh, be plugged at the bottom and uh, a few other things associated with gravity cores. And one thing uh, about gravity cores is because, again, um, you're dropping it down potentially tens of meters um, if you're just doing it totally by hand, I kind of have a rule of thumb myself of like a maximum depth of about 40 meters is when you're really pushing it. Cause at that kind of level, you really can't feel it going into the sediment anymore. Um, you're basically going by the markings on your line. Um, and at the, this is a relatively small device a lot of the time. So I've done it myself from canoes, a whole 
a whole bunch, um, but you can get progressively more complex. Um, as you start going into deeper lakes, you can start dealing with winch systems um, where the necessary the need to feel it going into the sediment is lessened. Um, yeah, and one of the things about winches is they often replace the rope, which is kind of how gravity cores tend to be lowered and raised uh, because it's lighter and you don't really need to have anything with something like a braided um, steel cable. And that removes some of the flex that if you have 40 meters, over 100 feet of rope, uh, splayed out into the bottom of the lake. There's going to be vertical, you know, there's going to be movement side to side as different currents happen and all that kind of thing as the wave action moves you up and down. When you replace it with a braided steel cable, you take a little bit of that out so you also get a little bit more of a rigid line system and then there's going to be less flex on that. But the real reason is because your arms are completely dead if you pull 40 meters of rope in a bunch of times. Yes, and especially when you're dealing with 40 meters of depth, um, you're not going to be hitting it every single time. So you're going to be pulling it up empty a whole bunch. and it, Yeah, and that sediment is going to be, at a 40 meter deep lake, is going to be super soft, soupy sediment. You just want that perfect 50 centimeters in your 60 centimeter tube. You're going to be doing that three, four, five times easily. For So yeah, you don't want to do that more than once. And uh, one of the key things when working with gravity cores like this is basically not disturbing the sediment. So one of the key, the, the surface sediments, I mean. So one of the key things is you want to basically feather it in because if you have a big bow wave going in front of your uh, core going down, you've got the potential to blow off the most recent sediments, which could potentially be wh what you're really interested in and you know what you'll be using to anchor your chronology in many ways. Yeah, for sure. Because you'll then just take the surface to be modern. If you do remove that material, you would never know. And the activity of that would be taken as modern. There's no way to know that's not the surface if you don't have some sort of independent marker. So not losing that sediment water interface is critical to a gravity core. Absolutely. And I actually have uh, put it up in the show notes, a little bit of like short video footage of a gravity core entering uh, the surface of a lake, just so you can see what it looks like uh, for anyone this is completely alien to, um, but just the idea of like you can see the bottom sediments and you want the core to go in and you want it to go in smoothly and you will not know if you, <clears throat> depending on the composition of the sediment, uh, when you bring it back up because it's going to look like mud a lot of the time unless you've got some markers like chronomid tubes or something that makes can convince you that you know you have the very very surface, but a lot of the time you know you're going I did everything right. I think everything is right. It should be right. I'll continue on working on this core for a couple of years. Yeah, for sure. Especially if it's a deep lake and there's time for that. If you did disturb it for that stuff to resettle down, like there are, there are reasons that you could convince yourself because you don't want to do it again or you think it's good or whatever, that that's perfect. Um, going back to what I was saying, just finish, before we finish off on uh, gravity cores, one of the things Adam said when he first defined how these things work is how you trigger them. And there, are, I would say there are basically two key types of gravity cores. There's the ones that go down as an open tube and there's nothing impeding the movement. There's no back flowing kind of valve um, that is stopping the sediment. So it's open. And then when it's settled into the sediment, it still hasn't closed. It, you stop it in terms of you don't lower it any further. And then you send something down to trigger a release mechanism. Usually we call those a messenger, which is the device that tells it to release that hits some sort of... Um, metal uh, thing on the top that releases through a spring action the thing to seal it so that puts your thumb on the straw and then you bring it back up 
The other type that is very common, uh, particularly for those who have seen the UETEC gravity core system, which is made by a company in Austria, I believe, um, and we use them in our research currently, uh, has a valve on it. So there is no messenger. There's no connection where you drop anything from the surface. It goes, the. it's very, very light. The action on it is very, very uh, sensitive. So as soon as there's any flow of water through the tube, it keeps that valve open. When that stops and there's no more downward uh, movement, it seals that and remains like that as long as you continue to pull up on the core. So you should, can't let it back down, otherwise you may lose that material. But if you're bringing it back up, it keeps that sealed. Okay. And um, yeah, so a lot of the time, these are relatively small pieces of equipment. You can use them from canoes, but you can also use them when you're in dealing in more remote locations. Uh, you can deploy them from sitting on the float of a helicopter or a, or a plane, which, I, which I've done before and Josh has done many times. Um, and um, in terms of the length, like a standard gravity core, personally, I kind of think of when you're going from a canoe, at least, you're limited in terms of the depth of the core that you can get really by the length of your arms a lot of the time. because you So can, Brian Cumming can get like a two meter long core yeah, and, uh, from Brian Cumming, professor at head of the, bio, the biology department at Queens. Yeah. Very tall man. Whereas a uh, someone with T Rex arms like myself, um, yeah. you know, you have to get your face and head wet to get yeah, any anything close sure. to that. Um, you can ju- you can always jump in and and seal it uh, the in the lake. I've done that once before as well. Yeah, I've never done it. No. Yeah. Uh, it, it. It's actually quite difficult to get back into the canoe after that, though. Yeah, well, I've gotten into a canoe from the water before, but never because I went in on my own uh, accord. Um, But I guess the last thing, maybe before we finish off with things, is how you seal them. So in most cases, the tube comes up just completely open. For your average, like, that's going to work perfectly well. And you would put something into it that we would call a bung, is the, the kind of colloquial term for them, to seal that. And those are usually some sort of rubbery thing that can deform a little bit to take the shape of the tube, and that plugs it, and then that would be used to extrude it. That would be the bottom of the extruding device. Uh, there are other ways that that can be done. And there are may, may be reasons why you may want to do that. If you have very, very deep lakes, uh, it's possible that that material can come out as you reel that core back up to the surface. And there are devices that can be fitted to the core that immediately plug the tube as soon as you pull it off of the bottom. Uh, and there are different ways that that can be done. But that seals the tube so that even if you're pulling it 200 meters up um, from the surface, there is already a seal on the bottom so it can't fall out because that sediment may be very fine or you may just get tired and have to stop uh, reeling that core in or you know um, winching that, that material in and it can fall out. And then there are also core catchers that go in the bottom of all different cores that are sort of like a bladed, like an iris is the best term I can think of it if you've ever, or maybe you haven't looked into it, like a camera lens that opens and closes and that can be used to seal the sediment immediately. So it opens as you push the tube, as the tube enters the sediment and then it closes behind it as you pull it back out and it seals the material in immediately. That's, that's, that is a lot more complex sounding than a uh, three inch street hockey puck. 
Uh, it is for sure. Uh, they, they can work very well, especially as you get into really clay material. So if the material is really, really dense and fine grained, it sticks to itself. Like clay is really adhesive or cohesive to itself. And it doesn't want to come out of the mud that pl- or out of the bottom, that plug will stay there. And you can get basically like a, a small round cylinder where the core went in, but it never brings it out of the, the, out of the hole because the suction on the top is not sufficient to break those bonds. So the core catcher basically seals it in the bottom and brings it out with you. So you don't really need, you actually don't even really need the plunger uh, to be sealed at the top of the straw to get one of those out. And, and that's actually a pretty good segue because a lot of other coring devices use that. Have we, is there anything we need to say about gravity core? We spent more time on gravity coring but it's kind of the basis for a lot of these ideas. So it's a good one to, to think about. And it's, and it's what I know best personally. So that's, uh, Oh yeah, me too. For sure. Um, yeah, I, I don't think so. Um, that the only other thing that I ha- have here is that, um, that when you're dealing with very, very shallow lakes, uh, you can have a push core modification. So instead of a line and a messenger, you can basically have it on some rods and like with a manual kind of trigger, um, but again, um, you know, that is dealing with the issue. You've got to work around the issues of disturbing the sediments yourself and by wading in, if that's what you're doing or, um, cause I think push core personally, I'm thinking of like nothing more than like two meters really. Yeah. Probably if you're wading for sure, I've used one through the ice and it, we, it was probably a little bit deeper than that. Um, and the reason was cause it was really, really hard sediment and the like thing didn't want to come out of it kind of like what I was talking about before. Um, but yeah, other than that, why would you use one more than a couple of meters in depth, you know, put it on a line and don't have to deal with the weight of it. Cause if you put even the lightest aluminum rods, if you put more than two or three meters of those things together, they're going to start to get heavy. And, uh, you know, a thin piece of braided rope is much lighter. Absolutely. And then the other thing would be, uh, you kind of alluded it to, to it a, a minute or two ago, but the, using uh, uh, the hammer action to get into thicker sediment. Right. Yeah. So uh, it's not unique to gravity cores, though it's more commonly applied to use some sort of percussion or hammer action to get deeper into the sediment. You can, there are uh, designs that have applied them to piston cores. Uh, separate from the vibrating type of things we'll talk about in a second. But yeah, the idea is just, you know, if the thing is light and the sediment's really coarse, or, or I keep saying coarse, if the sediment's really dense, uh, the weight of it isn't going to sink that much. You might only get 10 or 15 centimeters under the actual weight of the core itself if you have really clay, fine-grained, sticky sediment. And you need more than that because you want a longer record so you can hammer that thing in. I've used an ore before to push the core in, I mean, it's not really a hammer action, although I probably hit it a few times. Um, but there are more formal hammer percussion uh, attachments or corers themselves. So the UE tech system and not to keep, you know, this isn't a plug for UE tech, but, uh, has a hammer action that goes onto the actual core itself, whereas some are separate devices and it just allows you to using a separate rope to raise and lower this hammer and and pound that thing a little bit further into the sediment in order to get a longer record. Okay. Um, yeah, and so I guess uh, one other thing before we really move on, um, just given your mentions of 
UE Tech, I feel sort of compelled to uh, make a reference to John Glue at this point, who is in our lab and fundamental to uh, a lot of this equipment and who sadly passed away just over a year ago and is very much missed. Um, and it was just, he was a guy that um, made the choice, however many years ago, to settle on street hockey pucks as a uh, bunging device. They're the, the finest, uh, finest part of the entire system. Um, yeah, John Glue are greatly missed, obviously. And the Core Ideas podcast will do a, a full uh, tribute to John Glue one day uh, in the not too distant future um, because it's well. Uh, well-earned for many, many reasons. Um, being a good friend, number one. He had a lot to do with coring in general. So when this just this evening, I was reading through the chapter he wrote in the deeper books about some of these things, just trying to remind myself. And uh, yeah, some of the things like that, that, you know, the glue style gravity core, which is a messenger driven uh, gravity core based on the KB design. Uh, comes in a bunch of sizes. He has the mini glue, there's the standard, which is a two and a half, and then the three inch one. But the three inch one is the most commonly used because you get a bit more mud. And that, I guess that's kind of something you can add onto this is that why wouldn't you make a like a 12 inch one, you know, a foot across? But in general, they don't get much bigger than the UETEC, I think, being 86 um, millimeters. So three and a half inches. And, uh, and that's because at some point the suction just isn't enough. The sediment stays in. So you need to be, you know, do other things to get the sediment to come out. And even uh, if the and suction was enough, the Venn diagram of paleolimnology grad students and power lifters is uh, <laughs> shockingly small in my experience. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very true. That's a very good point. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> true. I don't have a I don't have a reply to that, <laughs> but the idea that that John Glue settled on the three inch design, which is the two, but is also the size of a street hockey puck, which is the perfect thing to bung uh, a gravity core with because they're a little squishy, they don't freeze, they're just perfect. Uh, is I don't know. I wish I would have had a chance to ask if that was fortune or perfect design that came up with that, but uh, um, to so much to the point where I I built I made my own. Um, John Glue style ones. I ordered for the UE Tech system. I ordered foam um, and all the pieces to build them because I like those that design better than uh, the ones that came with it, which are fine. But they're really meant to work with one of those self closing ball things, and uh, I much prefer the the hockey puck style because that's what I'm used to. So having uh, kind of finished our little discussion about uh, gravity cores. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is, uh, tying back into what we were talking about last time, last week about chronologies is the amount of time that you can, that is represented within a sediment core is highly variable depending on where you collect that core from. So, um, if we're talking about like a 40, 50 centimeter core, uh, in the Arctic, that could be a thousand years or more, um, temperate zones, it could be a couple of hundred years and, you know, in incredibly uh, high sedimentation rates, even down to a few decades. Um, but especially in Eastern North America, where our main focus is, you know, to get the full post-glacial history of a lake. So like since the last ice age, basically 10,000 plus years, um, you're going to need a lot more than 40 centimeters most of the time. And that, and to get these big long cores, which is a sm usually more complicated because you're dealing with multiple sections, um, you're going to have to go 
a step beyond uh, a gravity core in terms of complexity. Yeah. I mean, it'd be beautiful if you didn't have to go into multiple sections, if you could just push 14 meters down into the mud. Um, but what would you do with it if you could make that work? The forces are impossible to, to do that with um, human power. Uh, and even with more sophisticated machinery, um, that's still going to be quite the challenge. And then when you get it up, how would you have something that's you know, 30 feet off the surface of the lake? You would only be able to do that from the ice. And even then you wouldn't really be able to, you know, you're not going to have a boat with this massive thing. So you are going to get into a, a scenario where you need to take sections of the uh, sediment uh, in pieces instead of one long continuous sequence. And the most common way to do that is to use uh, some sort of piston core. Now, the piston core itself uh, is not, uh, in, in how its name is designed, is not uh, linked to taking it in segments. The piston is what seals the tube. So instead of a plunger that covers the top of a tube or seals on the inside of a tube very near the surface, the piston is actually in the tube itself. They tend to be uh, uh, narrower bodied, so not as uh, large diameter as the gravity cores. And then the piston goes into that. And the idea is that you would have the piston at a known depth, whether it's the surface when you're starting uh, or deeper down if you're doing a further drive after you've taken more than one drive. And then you would push the tube that is uh, going to collect the core, the core tube, uh, into the sediment. And then you would bring them both up and the piston provides the suction just as your uh, plunger did or your thumb did on your straw. Uh, the nice thing about that is because you can set that piston to a known depth, if you take your first drive and it's a meter long, and then your second drive, you start that at a meter into the sediment and take the meter to the second meter, and then your third drive, you start at the second meter and go to the third meter, and et cetera. Eventually, you build up this long record that encompasses the entire sediment record that you're interested in, when interested in, whether it's the whole history of the lake or some sort of selected time period. And, and that really is the entire idea behind a piston core in, in general. So personally, I, I've never done this. I've never been involved in a like Holocene or last 10,000 years level study. Um, but when you have, uh, what kind of depths have you been working with when you've been using a piston core? In terms of the amount of mud yeah. or the amount of water? Uh, uh, the amount of mud, the most I've ever taken was six meters. Okay. Uh, and how far back north. did that get you? Uh, so 8,000 years, probably something like that. Uh, just last uh, two weeks ago on family day here in Ontario, Canada, uh, we took a three and a half meter core from Lake Scugog here, um, in three drives or four drives, I guess. I can't uh, think of a more appropriate family activity. Uh, Jenny and I went, um, the baby did not, <laughs> two, two of the grad students came as well. Yeah, so the only other thing I would say about piston cores is that um, most people, again, are probably familiar with one particular type. Now, there are two types of piston cores related to how you get that sediment, uh, how you get that core down to the sediment. The common one, sort of the Livingston-style one, uh, is a rod-driven piston core. So when you use, instead of a rope, you use interlinking rods to push into the sediment, just like we were talking about with the push core, except now you are pushing, instead of two meters, uh, quite a bit more depth into the sediment, and you just add another two-meter rod 
lower it down, add another two meter rod, push it down until you hit the surface, and then all of the depths of the uh, core itself. So it gets quite heavy uh, and quite logistically complicated. So they can be uh, a fair bit of work to use uh, in the actual setup. And I've done all of my piston coring from the ice, uh, which is a beautiful platform to do it as long as it's not too cold because you can just splay all your stuff around. But they can be done from the uh, in the open water period as well from a platform uh, often that's a couple of boats rigged together and and or anchored off or tied off to the the shore and the reason for uh, that not only to increase the amount of kind of footprint so you have more room to lay your stuff out and to work with the cores which we'll talk about in one second is that you need to remain in the same spot because you want to basically you want that core tube, whether, you know, two inch tube to go back into the same hole that you've made in the first drive before. It doesn't have to, you can push it down to the start depth and it should be fine. But in a lot of cases, it, you can feel when it goes back into the same, uh, same hole that you've taken the first and subsequent drives from. And then the only other, um, I don't know what you, the best way to describe it, but um, I guess rod driven type core that I've had any uh, experience with has been a P core or Russian core or chamber core. And, uh, I definitely, uh, in using it, um, you know, the, the weight of those rods really adds up and you can yep. see the value of having a power lifter on your team when you're Absolutely. like 10 meters down in the sediment, trying to twist those things around. Yeah. Or, or just to penetrate into really clay sediments, which you often end up with at the base of the, of sediments when you get into older post-glacial sediments, again, in, in a Canadian context, uh, you can literally be hanging off of them to try and push them into the sediment for that last little bit. And then just all of your might, you know, doing the, I mean, what's the opposite of a, I guess, yeah, just a squat, right? Where you're lifting up on those things. I don't do a lot of power lifting myself. Yeah. Um, Couldn't tell. Yeah, Couldn't and tell. it's a huge, uh, it, there, it can be much more physically demanding than some of the other types of methods. Uh, a couple maybe little additions before we leave piston coring is that for rod-driven coring, um, the amount of, of rod does become um, uh, too much at some point. And you tend to not see rod-driven piston cores used in depths more than about 30, 20 to 30 meters. And that's partly because of the weight of it but also because the rods themselves will flex uh, as they get longer and longer. If you have 20 meters of rod out, plus the depth into the sediment, they will flex. And you can put casings around them, but really beyond about 20 or 30 meters, it, it becomes too much. And then you would switch to a cable-driven piston core, which is the same principle, it's just a different way of taking the sediment. Uh, and the last thing I would say, probably before I kind of, uh, at least my mind on piston cores is empty, is... Um, Unlike the gravity core where you have that nice surface sediment water interface and you want to extrude that and keep that, generally piston cores, while you can do that, you can take the whole core back, generally because you need to take subsequent drives, you need to extrude that immediately at the uh, site. So instead of using the vertical extrusion, vertical technique for pushing the core down onto a platform and taking off little bits at a time, you know, quarter centimeter, half centimeter, uh, into baggies or whatever you're extruding into, you would horizontally extrude that material out onto some sort of um, material that's going to hold it. Usually, we usually use 
uh, aluminum foil and saran wrap, and then we wrap it all up nicely. So that means that the piston core in general is only going to take the material that's more consolidated. It's not going to collect the really watery surface sediments, and that material will be lost when you turn it on its side and extrude it horizontally. Uh, and that means that in many cases, if you're taking a piston core, you also want to have a gravity core to overlap with that surface period where the really watery sediment is down to the stuff that's a little bit thicker that overlaps into that first drive of that piston core. Okay. And um, I think that leads into just the general topic of extruding or slicing up the cores, um, which is the active, because um, you eventually are going to be wanting to be working with discrete intervals to do your analysis as you go down in sediment depth. And the idea that um, that extruding or the ability of capturing the surface sediments accurately is actually one of the later developments in the history of paleoimmunology. So the idea of getting back a geological sequence going back hundreds, thousands of years um, was around <clears throat> prior to you know, technologies being or techniques being developed to capture the surface and being able to, the surface sediments and being able to extrude them neatly and accurately and um, contiguously. Oh yeah, the first paleolimnologists didn't even need boats. They were looking at exposures. You know, the, the lake was dry and just looking at the, the geological record of what was a former lake bed. And then beyond that, it was taking long, really, really uh, dense sediment records for, you know, long-term paleoclimate reconstructions or whatever. And the interest in the most recent past is a very, fairly recent phenomenon in terms of paleolimnology. It related to only the ability to collect that and then extrude it. And I think that is sometimes lost. It definitely was lost on me as a young graduate student because, you know, when you look at the equipment of like the piston cores and the gravity cores and hammer cores and all that kind of stuff, the actual equipment they use to extrude the sediments is much less interesting um, in terms but of... more important in some oh, ways. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you don't really realize it was a later development and, you know, we look at pictures of our PhD supervisor when he was a graduate student. And, you know, they were using a modified car jack to uh, push the sediment up through the tube in, like, discrete amounts to be able to capture it on the top. Yeah, for sure. Giant glasses from the 80s, all sorts of nice brown hair and, uh, you know, Must things you would buy. Everywhere. Mustaches everywhere. Really, really short, white <laughs> jeans. And... Uh, and stuff you would buy at the hardware store to in order to put these things together. Yeah. Yeah. No, everything would have been, you know, was custom made by necessity because commercial um, commercial endeavors um, producing these things simply did not exist until much, much later. So we've gone through a couple of the most commonly used techniques. And I, I think, you know, we're hitting where we're, Time-wise, usually want to end these uh, episodes. So we may end up doing a coring 2.0 or a mudslinging 2.0. Uh, but one, uh, we just wanted to finish by talking about a couple of things that we haven't talked about yet that maybe people have heard about or are familiar with. Uh, the first being box core. So this is an enclosed type of coring device in the same way as a gravity core. The only difference being uh, they tend to be a little bit larger in size. And that's because like we were saying, it doesn't rely on the suction to remove the sediment. It actually closes around the plug, the box, or the cube, 
uh, well, not cube if they're not the same depth, but uh, the box of sediment and brings it back up in the box itself. So these are the same way as if you've done some um, limnological sampling to take sediments that aren't used for paleolimnology, often are used for like surface sediment grabs, an Ekman grab or a Ponar grab. These are the same kind of idea. And you can use these as uh you know, stratigraphic records, just in the same way you would a gravity core. Or, and they've done this before, if you need a fairly small amount of mud, but you want it to be very, very clean, you can take a box core to get this nice plug of mud, this box of mud, and then use a syringe or a smaller, even a, a mini glue kind of small two inch or inch and a half uh, core to take that core. So that's one way you can do that. And the box cores are really common in marine or large lake type of uh, coring uh, activities. And then the second thing is when you need to get into really, really stiff sediments. So sediments that you couldn't push the piston core in. The gravity core would never work. A hammer core is not even going to penetrate that much. And there are ways that you can use uh, different devices in order to use mechanical advantage to get the coring tube into the mud itself. And these are often referred to as vibra cores. And they often have a like a diesel engine or a gas-powered engine that vibrates it into the mud and that can allow you to penetrate really really stiff sediments if you're coring like a delta environment that has really um, you know densely packed fine-grained or even coarser grained heavier sediments those can be a really useful tool uh, for getting into those kind of records where you may not be able to do that elsewise and as usual most of the discussion has been biased by our own experiences so uh that's why I was so, you know, heavily leaning into the details of gravity cores, just because that's what I know best. Um, have you ever used a fiber core? No, I've never uh, taken one. It's on the list of things I want to I want to learn how to do, though. Scott Lamoureux at Queens has one, and uh, we have some work in the in the Delta that would be very ideal for one. Cool, cool. Um, yeah. For sure. Yeah. So if you have a, a particular type, say you're really keen on the Macarith core, uh, for example, and you know would like to hear it featured on Mudslinging 2.0, send us uh, some correspondence and we'll add that in because we certainly haven't, you know, we've only, you know, hit the tip of the iceberg on, on all of the possible different ways to take sediments out of the bottom of a lake. Yeah. Because again, keep in mind, this is an, one of our early episodes. We're just trying to get some base vocabulary um, out in terms of like the fundamentals of paleomology. Um, and we can drill down in more depth in future episodes once we've got that sort of baseline established. I see um, what you did there. That's good. Um, and, but yes, as Josh mentions, if, if we've left anything out, if you are, you know, offended by something that has been excluded from this particular episode, uh, let us know. Um, we have a, Email address for the uh, podcast, uh, core ideas podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Um, we're happy to get stuff in the mailbag anytime. We also have a website um, which has short summaries um, and links to all of our past episodes available at uh, core ideas, all one word dot ajeziorski.ca. Um, ajeziorski is my name, basically, A J E Z I O R S K I. Um, and the easiest way to get in touch with us is our, uh, Twitter, um, handle. Which is core ideas, paleo, paleo spelt like the Canadians and the Americans spell it. So sorry for, our, uh, English, uh, followers, core ideas, paleo 
uh, on Twitter, send us a DM or, uh, or send us a message and, uh, we'll definitely be keen to hear from you. Absolutely. And, um, yeah. And we just, um, officially unveiled this podcast, uh, in the last week, we had a couple of episodes, uh, in the hopper or actually they've been online for a couple of weeks, but just no one knew about them because we didn't draw any attention to them, but we kind of, no one, uh, searches for paleo limnology on, uh, iTunes apparently. Other than myself. Because we're the only thing that comes up and there were no listens. So yes. there was a travesty that needed to be corrected after the Absolutely. first time I did that search. Um, Fixed. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so we just unveiled it in the last week and uh, been kind of overwhelmed by the positive feedback uh, that we have received. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It's been great. So uh, keep it coming and uh, we'll, we'll keep trying to knock out what we well, at least we think are interesting discussions. You can let us know. Um, but until next time, uh, thanks for listening. This has been Core Ideas, a paleolimnology podcast, and we'll catch you in the next week or so. Yeah, Goodbye. Thanks. See you next time. Bye.